Welcome to the seven innings podcast. And guys, believe it or not, we are 37 days away from the women's college world series. I feel like the official countdown is on, or maybe it's been on since like day one of the softball season, but regardless, 37 days away, we'll have a game in, in Oklahoma city. Uh, I'm Amanda Scarborough. And today on the, on the show, we have Michelle Smith, Madison Shipman, Jen Schroeder, Danielle Laurie, and Jenny Dalton Hill. So there are some big surprises that happen across the country uh, this past week, including a lot of sweeps, actually, like Texas sweeping Oklahoma State, Tennessee with two major comeback wins against Florida to sweep them, and Florida State sweeping Virginia Tech. We'll talk all about those, and we'll also talk about Utah-Washington. That was a good series in Seattle uh, with some Bailey bombs. We'll discuss the top 25 finalists for USA Softball Collegiate Player of the Year. Um, That top 25 list was announced after we recorded the last podcast, so we'll break it all down. We definitely have some thoughts on that. Um, And we have some really good questions in the mailbag to dig into. So all that on the show coming up today. First up, um, man, Robin, our, our producer, made this one for me, but I have to say horns up. Man, that's, as an Aggie, that one's a tough one for me, but I'll say it for the Seven Innings podcast. Uh, Texas sweeps Oklahoma State, and the way that they did it was absolutely wild. I don't think that anybody expected Texas to sweep Oklahoma State, like I th- except probably Texas, um, but I saw some things calling that series that I've never seen before that I've never seen before. So one, I saw a team taking no hitter to the seventh inning with the lead twice and lose both of those games. How? I also saw a team have three walk-off wins in a row. And then I also saw the same player have all three walk-off hits for that same team. And it was a freshman. Like what on earth was happening in Austin? Poor Michelle. I'm so sorry that this happened to your pokes. And I know, I know, but that's what Texas did going back to game three of their series against Kansas. Reese Atwood had the walk-off hit and then followed it up with game one and game two against Oklahoma state, another walk-off hit against Alexi Kilfoyle in game one. And then Kelly Maxwell in game two, unbelievable, but uh, Texas won both of those games and then ended up sweeping Oklahoma state where uh, their offense is a bit of a struggle bus right now. Um, but other stuff, we'll go back to that one. Other things happening in the Big 12, Jenny, uh, was Oklahoma and Waco taking on Baylor, trying to get a little revenge. What happened in that series? Yeah, that series was crazy. Oklahoma swept Baylor. And I don't know if any of you saw it, but on the Twitter machine, there was a t- there was some bantering kind of back and forth. And Baylor was throwing out some shade about how they thought Oklahoma was the team that had the pressure on them. Well, now six straight Big 12 shutouts going back to the Texas Tech series for Oklahoma and 26 shutouts on the year. Guys, that's more than half of their schedule has been via the shutout. The Oklahoma pitching staff right now of Jordy Ball, Nicole May and Alex Straco gave up just 10 hits, eight walks in the 21 innings of work. And for an Oklahoma team that led the nation in ERA going into the weekend, Oh, they lowered it coming out of the weekend. So it's down now to 0.83. In the last three seasons, this is the number that's kind of mind boggling to me. Oklahoma has a record of 157 and eight. They've only lost eight games in the last three years. And when you think about how Oklahoma responds when they lose, they don't lose to you again. 
And so that's what makes them so difficult. Um, you may beat them once, but don't put any kind of bulletin board material up there for them because they definitely come back and attack. Um, they finished the regular season this week or this next couple of weeks with Kansas and Oklahoma state. Everybody's got their eyes on that Oklahoma state, Oklahoma finish, but um, going back to your Texas, Oklahoma state conversation, Amanda, you talked about Reese Atwood, the young freshman for Texas to be able to go three consecutive games with walk-off hits. I think the thing that's such a standout for me is in watching those at bats and in watching those games that she was hitting, she didn't do it the same way any of those times in game one or in game three against Kansas, where the walk-off started, it was a hard ground ball in the five, six hole. She was one for four on the day. That was her only hit. And then in the first game of the Oklahoma state series, the very next game, hard ground ball back up the middle. She was two for four on that one. Well, you expect a ground ball off Lexi Kilfoyle, right? And then game, game two against Oklahoma state, that's where the big bomb came into it. It was a huge three run home run. She was only one for three on the day with two strikeouts. So Kelly Maxwell had had her in her back pocket and then left a big one up for the freshman to be able to dominate again. I don't know that Texas though, is the conversation in this one as much Amanda though, as it is the offense for Oklahoma state. What were you seeing? Yeah, I saw an offense just really struggle to drive the ball. I, I mean, just there wasn't a lot of hard contact. And I mean, even in the first two games between both teams, like um, me and Kevin were laughing about it. The, the play-by-play I was working with it. Like if a team, if one of the players hit it like 180 feet, it seemed like a home run because just nobody was really driving the ball. And then Oklahoma State carried that um, into game three where they swung it a little bit better. And Rachel Becker, their leadoff hitter and their transfer from Purdue, like she had some good swings. Um, uh, but just all in all, Oklahoma State's offense just really seemed off. It, to me, the, this five-game losing streak that they're on, because they are on a five-game losing streak going back to I, losing to Iowa State, then Wichita State, and then all three games against Texas, they're just not swinging it. Their pitchers are keeping them in the game. Their defense is playing pretty solid, but they're just not being able to drive the ball. Um, and a follow-up against Reese Atwood, Jenny, is that, she told us after the game that she had never had a walk-off before in her life. And then she had three in a row. So just, I mean, that entire series, like how do you get no hit for 12 innings in two games? And then you end up sweeping the team. I mean, like you just don't ever really see that. So um, te- for Texas, Mac Morgan pitched really well. They used her a couple of times. Like, I feel like she's truly emerging. Um, I mean, she already had, but as their ace, but now she's like on this, um, to almost 30 straight innings where nobody has even scored against her. So she seems to be pitching really well. And um, we thought Jenny that that last weekend against Oklahoma state, the big 12 championship regular season would come down to it, but it's not really looking like that anymore with the, with a sweep that Oklahoma state had against Texas. Yeah. Oklahoma right now is looking to take it away against Kansas. If they can sweep Kansas, they secure the big 12 championship. So big day or big weekend for them to not have to have that huge pressure on the Bedlam series. But when you look at Texas, they're really a team that you've got to watch out for right now because of the young talent that they have in that lineup. Second baseman, Leanne, good, most doubles and triples on the team. We already talked about Reese Atwood, most home runs on the team, shortstop, Viviana Martinez, most RBI on the team. I mean, you've got young freshmen putting up big numbers in a situation where their backs are against the wall and they came through in really big moments. 
Yeah. And last thing uh, before we move to number two, Michelle, is that, you know, Baylor didn't get run ruled this weekend against Oklahoma, which always seems like a plus if you play them in one game and don't get run ruled, nevertheless, an entire series. So props to Baylor who, you know, actually played pretty decent and, and held them tight. But I think the thing is, Michelle, is like even in these close games, Oklahoma has been playing in more, it seems this year. Those close games, nobody's scoring off of them. Yeah, it's really interesting because when you and we have talked about Oklahoma over the last um, couple years, not just this year, it's always been about their offense, right? And how good their offense is, but they're they're pitching. They're uh, they're really stepping up this year, and obviously their defense, best defense in the country as well. So, um, so Oklahoma always uh, continuing to shine. But uh, thanks for the wrap up on uh, the Big Twelve. We're going to roll into the two spot, and uh, Jen and I are going to talk a little bit about the pack uh, and what's going on at, because obviously. Um, Washington is swinging it as well. And a lot of that has to do with Bailey. Bailey Bombs, as you mentioned, Amanda, uh, can't contain Klingler. She has just been outstanding. She had a walk-off um, against Utah. And I, I thought it was an interesting, um, um, thought it was an interesting series, uh, Utah-Washington. I kind of expected Utah to um, maybe show up a little bit more, Jen. I, I don't know. It was kind of interesting. But Washington outstanding pitching as well they had some big hits when they needed it um so I don't know what did, what did you see from the uh from the series well first and foremost if there's one team that I don't want to face in the postseason Amanda and I have talked about this it is Utah there is no way I want them coming to my regional as a number two team and this series although it's tough to watch Pac-12 games we all know this it was a fantastic series Utah actually won game one of the series on Friday night and then they lost game two, only six to five because of Bailey Klingler. And there's, of course, rain delays in Seattle. Doesn't matter that it's, you know, late April. There's going to be snow. Danielle, don't know how you live there, but it is beautiful in July. Um, and then they lost game three, five to three. So for me, the Pac-12 is dominating right now. And I'm not saying that as someone who played in the conference. They are so battle tested. They are playing every single weekend like it's a regional or super regional. And whether you're a Utah, a Stanford, an Oregon, like I just would not want to play one of those teams in the postseason at all. But Bailey Klingler is just dominant. Uh, I'm going to steal one of Graham Hayes' stats that there are more than 400 Division I players right now with more strikeouts this season than Bailey Klingler has in four years of playing at UW. What she's able to do for that team and that offense is truly remarkable. There's no doubt in my mind that she's the spark plug, she's the difference maker, and she is just so fun to watch, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, she's outstanding. And, you know, I think when you look at a lot of these programs, um, they all have someone who shines. But I I love the fact that Bailey uh, is shining this year and everyone's prepping for her because she was the player of the year last year in the pack. Right. So everyone's got that big asterisk next to her name and she still continues to beat people. I thought also interesting um, this last weekend was UCLA sweeping ASU. And Megan Foremo, so in game one, she gave up three solo home runs, was pulled in the sixth inning. UCLA obviously wins the game. They win game two, which Beth Mowens and I called. And then game three, Foremo comes back, and she's even better in game three than she was in game one. She had 12 strikeouts. She did give up one home run to Jordan Van Hook, who is now leading um, the pack 
uh, in home runs, um, who's, you know, just been off the charts with the long ball. But I just, I have to say, I was impressed with Megan Faramo being able to come back, you know, Jen, in that series. Um, Oregon has won nine straight and 11 of their last 12. So they're getting hot at the right time. They have the pitcher of the week and the player of the week um, in the pack. And then um, what about Stanford? What's going on? We've been talking about Stanford, right? Uh, this year, they are now sitting in fifth position in the pack. All right. So this has been a crazy year. UCLA is on top. They're more than likely going to play Utah this weekend with one game. They win their, uh, they have the share, I think, of the title right now with one win. I think they they get the, uh, the the title themselves. But Washington is in the two spot, Utah, Oregon, and then Stanford in the five spot right now, Jen. Yeah, Stanford's a team we were talking about, you know, beginning of season, preseason, obviously after coming off of even if we look at last season, them beating Alabama at the Rhodes House, right? They're a team that everyone's watching. They have um, that target on their back. They can pitch. We all know this. They can pitch. But when it comes down to consistent offense, they struggle. And when you can't outscore your opponents, you're not going to win. Now, Oregon to me is another interesting team. You mentioned nine straight wins. They won 11 of their last 12 games. Those two players that got player of the week, Tara McGowan, and then also Morgan Scott as pitcher of the week, it's their first ever time winning that award. Think about how good Tara McGowan is, and she's never won that award. So this is a team that is firing on all cylinders at the right time. And and this is why I think that the pack is going to be so tough to face in the postseason. If some of those teams go in as a two seed, I would be nervous. One thing to note about UCLA and Megan Framo, uh, Charlize Palacios went out. So she's out indefinitely. We haven't gotten an injury update from her, but Alyssa Garcia has stepped into that catching role. And although, you know, you all know, I love catchers and I love both of them. There statistically is it, it there's statistically when Alyssa Garcia is pitching or catching the pitchers throw better. They just do statistically. And um, I love Char, what she does for the offense, but there is something to be said about a defensive catcher who makes a difference for their pitcher. Last note on UCLA is UCLA clinched their 12th Pac-12 championship, which seems like a, a gaudy number, except for they have 12 national championships. So until this past weekend, they had more national championships than Pac-12 championships. That kind of stuck out to me, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you're, you're, you're preaching to my heart when you're talking about defensive catchers. You know, I love that. And uh, yeah, Garcia is one of the best uh, framers and receivers in the game. So, um, but hopefully Charlize um, Palacios, hopefully we get an update and that she'll be able to, to, to be back with the Bruins sometime soon. Another little quick note before we roll down to the three spot is when's the last time Arizona was in last place in the pack? They have just three wins in the pack. They're three and 15. Amanda? And you got to think that they're they're um, yeah figuring out if they're going to make the postseason. You got to think yeah. that. I mean, I know Jenny's nodding her head. I'm sure she has thoughts here. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. Sorry, Jenny. Um, <laughs> all right, hey, I, I want to interject. This has been a painful already pod, a painful <laughs> pod for our, for many of us. Okay, so I just know. I know. I know. We're, we're, Michelle with Oklahoma State, even me talking about catchers, that was, yeah. that was painful because I love them both. And then Jenny with Arizona. So hopefully we can turn a corner and be positive. Well, for the rest. It's, about, it's about to turn right now because we're going to number three, speaking volumes. So two matchups from within the SEC specifically stood out this weekend, really Tennessee um, and Florida in Knoxville and Auburn, Alabama and Tuscaloosa. So Tennessee ended up sweeping Florida despite 
Florida scoring 16 runs in the last two games. They only scored one in game one when they lost, and they really turned it on in game two and three, but it wasn't enough. Auburn ended up winning the series in Tuscaloosa in an epic game three Penta versus Fouts matchup on ESPN. But Madison, let's start with you since you're on the call for Florida versus Tennessee. I mean, we know Tennessee is a good ball club and they're at the top of the SEC right now. But I think the question people might be wondering is what's happening with Florida? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what happened last weekend. But before I get into that, I just wanted to quickly touch on the fact that this past Saturday was the All for Alex Day among the SEC. So everybody was wearing teal in honor of her legacy, but also to spread the awareness for ovarian cancer. And even the umpires around the league had a special SEC logo that was teal. So one of my favorite days. Uh, throughout the season. So I had to give a quick shout out, but that series was just absolutely wild. And I think when I look at Florida, we're so used to historically thinking about them as being a pitching and defensive dominant team. This year, it's all the offense. They can put up some serious runs and I have to give them some credit. You, you, We know what it feels like to be on the other side when the other team's putting up so many runs, but they just kept on fighting. They kept throwing punches. And you talk about Skylar Wallace, and she's been so good throughout her career, but this year she has taken it to a whole new level, and, and especially those power numbers. The home runs that she's hitting aren't just coming off of cookies straight down the middle of the plate. A lot of them are two-strike counts where the pitcher's trying to throw a rise ball up and out of the zone, and she takes her hands straight to it. I was so impressed with her barrel control, her leadership, just the competitive nature that she brings to the field every single day. And I think it's something that you can see the rest of the team trying to feed off of that energy. But Tennessee has just impressed us all season long with their pitching, but it was their hitting that stepped up this past weekend. Ashley Rogers only ended up throwing about two and a third inning in game one, but it was Peyton Gottschall that stepped up and be able to throw several innings for them this weekend. But offensively, they they don't just rely on Kiki Malloy, but McKenna Gibson being able to step up, Riley West in the weekend that she had a grand slam and a solo shot and and a game-tying double, you name it. They had so many different players in their offense step up, and that's another reason why they're so difficult to pitch to because you just can't pitch around one batter because you've got somebody behind them that can be able to step up. Same goes for, for Florida a little bit with Skylar Wallace. You don't necessarily want to pitch around her because of the speed that she has at the top of the lineup. So she sees a lot of pitches, but that Tennessee offense, I tell you what, that is going to be a scary team when the postseason comes around. All right. I'm going to talk a little uh, Auburn, Alabama, because that was one of the coolest series that I got to do in person. And I said to Courtney Lyle, I, you know, you love calling games from home, but you feel like your pencil gets dull and then you get in person and you can really sharpen the pencil. And that's, that's how I felt. I, I was hoping to get two Penta bouts matchups, but we only got one on Sunday and it, it was epic. Um, but to just talk Alabama a little bit, April 21st has now issued Montana Fouts Day in the state of Alabama, which is kind of crazy to think. And until you're in person and you see the impact that this young lady has on that whole entire community, like Courtney Lyle and I were in a coffee shop on Saturday and people were like talking about, are they going to go to the Alabama, Al- Alabama spring game or to the softball game. And most people kept talking about how excited they were to go to the softball game. So it just goes to show the impact that softball has in Alabama and Montana Fouts. And there was a video that came up saying goodbye to her on her senior day. And it had all these kids just telling her how much they loved her. And Courtney was balling. Karen Johns was crying. I was like, yo, I got to hold it together here because we got to call a game. And it was just, you could just see how cool those types of moments were. Um, 
you know, Alabama to me this year, it's, it's tough. Like Montana Fouts leads them. And if she does not throw well, or it is not perfect, sometimes the struggle is real for them. And now that Ashley Prangy went down, she went down on the weekend, about a week ago, she hit a ball into her foot. Um, and then slid into second base and kind of jammed up her foot. So she's out right now, has a boot. And when your, you know, leading home run hitter is down for the count, when you have two games left, it puts you in a tough position. So kind of switching gears and going to Auburn, they were incredible to watch. And this was the first time that this team had set foot in the Rhodes house as a team outside of the SEC tournament. So it's a different vibe when you're playing there with that crowd, and you're a young squad, like this is a team that is fairly young when you think about it. But first and foremost, Denver Bryant, electric. She got a warning from the umpire and I was here for it because you could just tell she was playing into the crowd. Like it's one of those things where it's like, you got to go through those emotions to figure out, hey, how am I going to get through this? And Mickey Dean went out and talked to the team and it was completely different vibes, but she had a hell of a weekend. I mean, she had two home runs, five RBIs, had a home run Saturday off Fouts when she was throwing legit. So I think she's someone now that she's fully healthy off of her injury last year, she's in a money position, Montana or not Montana, uh, Maddie Penta, excuse me, best changeup in the game. No doubt. No one throws a changeup like her, her ability to make it look like everything else. And the fact that it was as good from when she threw game two to game three, they couldn't tell what was coming. Um, and lastly, just kind of a fun moment was when Carly McCondishy hit that solo shot in the Sunday game. She was over her last 17. And like, she's kind of that senior, that stud that's supposed to be clutch. So to see her come up and the excitement from the group for her to step up in that moment was pretty big. This is an Auburn team that I want no part of when uh, when the postseason hits because of what Maddie Penta brings. But more importantly, the confidence that you can feel that brews with this group. Yeah, nobody's going to want to see Auburn at the regional, that's for sure. Um, one fun fact about Skylar Wallace from Plain, Tennessee. She had a home run off of each Ashley Rogers, Peyton Gottschall, and Carlin Pickens this weekend, which you just don't see very often. Uh, Tennessee will play Arkansas this weekend, which is a really big series in the SEC because right now Arkansas, I believe, is in third place. Um, I wrote that down without looking it up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. So um, that's that. Michelle, speaking of Skylar Wallace, how about National Player of the Year, maybe? Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, when you think about Skylar Wallace and also um, Danielle, like you were talking about Denver Bryant, I mean, that's the type of fire every team needs one of those types of kids. And the, and the teams that don't have that fiery player, it, it's a, it's a different, different ball game, but yeah. Um, Auburn impressive Skylar Wallace impressive. I actually screenshot that home run that she hit. Um, it was literally above her, her eyeballs. I mean, it was the, you know, was, I love a good rise ball hack too. So I was fired uh, up on that one. I was, I was like, Oh, I bet Maddie's just loving this. <laughs> I almost looked like she needed a, a tennis racket. She's like, no, I can do it with my bat. All right, ladies. So we're going to, um, we're going to jump into the four hole and we're going to talk about the national player of the year award. Um, so USA softball put this out last week, 25 finalists. Um, and it was interesting. Oklahoma leads the way with five athletes. And here's another, uh, point that um, we all need to be aware of is that each coach has to uh, nominate their players. So a little bit, a little bit of a fun fact there, but Oklahoma has five. There's a, you know, a bunch with a bunch of schools with two. Um, I thought it was an interesting list. And I know that y'all have a little bit of an opinion on it. Amanda, why don't you jump in and just uh, give us what you got on it? 
<laughs> I think we all maybe might have a lot on this list. Um, but my initial thoughts is I, I, I think within this list, there are just some no doubters. And I think honestly, you can probably look at the list and already see the top 10 that will come out in May. That's shit. Like, you know, Kiki Malloy is going to be there. Jada Coleman, Valerie Cagle, Maya, Br- like you, you really can look at this list and see the top 10. Um, but two things that, that I'll say, and it's in regards to pitching, I think, and, and I think every athlete on this list is, is deserving. And I, I will say phenomenal players, right? Very talented. But what, what caught my attention, and, and I think Nigeri Kennedy from Stanford freshman pitcher is tremendous. One of the best pitchers in the country, but she's been hurt. And so when you look at the number of innings that she's thrown compared to other pitchers, I mean, it was when we were voting, I think she was 50 something innings compared to 90 or over a hundred, like some other pitchers have had. And this is nothing about Nyjah Kennedy. She, she will be on this list for years to come undoubtedly, but this year, I just think that she, that player took a spot from somebody else who potentially could have been on it. And I also think um, with putting all three of the Oklahoma pitchers on there, I, I just, I can't say I fully agree with it. Now, I don't know which one that I would have picked, but I think Jordy Ball, if she's the only pitcher on her team or a pitcher of two on the team or Nicole May or Alex Duraco, I think that those athletes would make it. But the fact that all three of them were on there, I just think that it's, I don't know. I, I, I really struggle with that again to the innings situation that they all share the innings and they're lucky they have the best staff in the country, but I don't know if that necessarily means that they should be up for top for, for player there. I don't know. It, it's tricky and I know it's not easy, but those are just two of the things that stood out to me, Danielle. So when I look at something like that with three of those pitchers, if you were to split them up and put them on any other staff and go, Hey, how would they be as the solidified ACE? That to me is what would go to show, hey, they deserve to be on that list. And it's not to say that as a staff, they don't work exceptional together, but I couldn't agree more. I think that same thing with Nyjah Kennedy. When I was looking through the stats this morning, it's like she took a good chunk of time where we called games where Courtney Lyle and I went to UCLA and she didn't get the chance to throw. So that's time not playing the game when others are grinding and doing it. And just a couple different people that I have on my list, where's Hedgecock? I mean, she leads the nation in home runs, 55 ribbies. Like she's a player that stands out to me, especially the work that went into the off season to look at her numbers and the players that she was playing behind. Like that is such a bright light. When you see that in our sport, the work behind the scenes to put them in a position to go out and have a, an exceptional year. So she's a player for me that um, I have circled and I, I wish she was on this list. And one more um, is, is Jada Kearney. And I know we've talked about this too. Like, at times we're big on the, the batting average production. Like, Ooh, you want these big old batting averages, but what about the like actual production and some of these intense numbers, like Kearney 382, 17 homers. I mean, an 863 slugging percentage, 29 walks. Like, I don't know. I'm someone that's been on this list and I can honestly say, I didn't really care much about it. Like it didn't deter me away from any of the work when you're doing it. Um, but it, it's just weird how all of the thought process goes through it. So I want to know what uh, Ms. Schroeder feels too. Um, I have Jada on my list too, Danielle. I have Karina Gaskins. Ali Skaggs is leading the pack in RBIs above Maya Brady. I mean, Autumn Owen, a freshman from Marshall. Again, like Amanda said, we do not know who nominated players. So like Jordan Woolery at UCLA, great numbers. I know she wasn't nominated, even though she has potential numbers to be on this list. 
Now, Danielle, where I'm going to disagree with you is I don't think we can look at the Oklahoma pitching staff or any pitchers and think if they were on another team this year, would they be good enough to be on this list or would they pitch more? I disagree with that. I think that this list has to come from what you're doing this year, not what you've done in years past, not what you've done in previous seasons, but are you the player of the year this year? And what are you doing to deserve that? That's what I think this list should be about. And I don't necessarily believe that 10 through 25, like Amanda said, is representative of that, Jenny. Well, and when you look at the list, does it need to be split so evenly between position players and pitchers? There's 13 pitchers on this list. And I don't know that I look at this list and think that these 13 are the cream of the crop. I mean, I'm not going to point out specific names. I don't want to disrespect any of them because they are all quality arms in the circle. However, we're seeing a lot of bats this year really stepping up and making a difference in the game. And the pitchers have had to share innings. No longer is it one arm in the circle. And because of that, you're relying on the other pitchers on your staff. So I think that that really needs to be talked about because Yes, as a hitter, you're only as good as who hits in front of and behind you to protect you. But as a pitcher, it's a much different situation. I want to know that you can throw complete games. I want to know that you can shut down offenses. And I don't know that 13 pitchers on this list are as good as that can be without the other people on staff, because we've seen that complete game number has completely dropped in the last couple of years. One thing that I've always lobbied for, too, which I don't know why we don't do it, is having a specific pitcher of the year award and then having a player of the year award, because I always feel like ultimately it ends up getting awarded to the pitcher, or especially if a pitcher is a hitting pitcher, then, you know, it kind of solidifies their spot. Okay, real, real quick, Madison, I will answer to that. Like, I think that they consider this like the Heisman of softball. And so even in football, in college football, they have the Heisman and multiple different positions can be up with it, but there can be a quarterback of the year award, a linebacker of the year, and so so on and so forth. So I think we should still have this award. And I think that we should add the pitcher of the year and the hitter of the year uh, underneath it, or, or either a catcher of the year, other positions too. Yeah. And I'm totally with you on that. I just feel like we have one that's just like everybody under the same umbrella rather than having maybe this one giant overarching award and then a couple of other awards in there too. So that's kind of the way I look at it. When I, when I think of somebody being on this list, I think if you were to pull them off of that team, how big of an impact would that be for that team? If you didn't have these players producing the way that they are, would that be a substantial impact on the team? And that's kind of the way that I look at it too. And I think all too often we look strictly just at ERA or strictly just at batting average, but like we've all pointed out so far on this podcast, there are so many other stats and things to look at. There's there's the intangible clutch factor too that I always think plays a factor into these things that you don't necessarily see on a stat sheet, but we all know from watching these teams throughout the season makes a really big difference in our minds who are some of the top players across the nation. Yeah, and I think one other thing to consider is like with the Oklahoma having five is that this is for player of the year, not team of the year. And, you know, it just kind of shows, um, you know, I th- I think it goes to the one player who has made the most impact to a team and gets that team more than likely to the Women's College World Series. I mean, I think that's probably a, a big, you know, check in the box as well. Um, who makes it to Oklahoma City obviously increases the odds that that you win uh, you win that award. All right. Great discussions on the National Player of the Year Award. We're going to jump down into the five spot and talk about the Seminole sweep. JDH, um, Florida State, man, they are just firing on all cylinders. They swept Virginia Tech. Um, They won on a 
run rule on Saturday. Um, they've been doing it home games, away games, actually more away games. They beat Clemson, swept Clemson on the road, Virginia Tech on the road. Every one of their hard matchups has been on the road this year. They went to Oklahoma State. They went to Oklahoma. I mean, this is a team that, you know, maybe stubbed their toe a little bit early, but really firing on all cylinders. Uh, Catherine Sandercock looking really good. Can read. I mean, their pitching staff is just outstanding. Um, hitting the long ball, stealing bases, creating havoc. Just, you know, a fun, fun team to watch. Um, what else were you seeing, uh, JDH, in the ACC? Well, it comes down to Florida State is never out of a ball game. They will... It'll be death by a thousand paper cuts because this is a team that has never or has not been a long ball producing team in the past couple of seasons. It's doubles, it's singles, it's stealing bases, it's putting pressure on a defense. So Florida State had 10 doubles in the series and just one home run by Mac Leonard. They did win via the run rule in game three. Um, but Kat Sandercock, this is a question I have for you, Michelle. Kat Sandercock was the starter in game one and then the closer in games two and three. So how does a pitcher have to adjust their mindset to be a starter, a middle reliever, or a closer on a staff? Uh, well, you definitely have a different mindset. A lot of it has to do also with your, your warm-up, you know, like how you warm up for a game and then how quickly you need to be able to get ready when you are in relief or coming in to close. Um, but that's one of the things that Lani Alameda has told us this year. She wants every one of her pitchers to be comfortable in any uncomfortable position. And so if they're not used to closing, she's going to, she's going to make you close. If you're not used to starting, she's going to, she's going to make you start. Uh, yeah. Like McKenna Reed, she got her first start at Clemson in the opening game of that series. You talk about um, having your first start as a freshman. That's a pretty big, <laughs> pretty big spark, but you know, mentality. Yeah. You, you've got to be strong. You've got to know that the hitters are already raring and ready to go, but that that's a great question. JDH. Well, and I love the way that Lonnie Alameda pre prepares her teams. She does not put a ton of emphasis on wins and losses at the beginning of the year. Yes, they're important, but she takes them as lessons and then just prepares her team down the stretch to be able to be postseason ready. So they've got a big week ahead of them. They play Florida on Wednesday and then Notre Dame this weekend at Notre Dame, which I think is a really big series for them, knowing that the ACC tournament will be held at Notre Dame in a couple of weekends. So then after that Notre Dame stretch, then they go and play Florida again before finishing out the regular season against Louisville in two weeks. Um, the bigger story, I think this in the ACC right now, though, is the struggles of Virginia Tech. Um, we knew Emma Lemley would have a lot on her shoulders this season. She worked hard in the offseason to be able to fix that drag foot, to be able to stay legal, and has done so. However, as a rise ball pitcher, she is giving up more than twice as many home runs this year. She had 12 last season. She's given up 28 this season. And I think it goes to the fact that their number two pitcher, Lindsey Grine, is a rise ball pitcher as well. So not only do you make a change in the circle, but then when you make a change, it's a lot of the same coming at these hitters. Um, the defense for Virginia Tech had a rough weekend. They gave up eight errors over three games. They finished out the regular season this weekend with Clemson. So it's definitely not easy for Virginia Tech right now. All three games will be against the uh, or all three games will be on the ACC network plus this weekend. So go ahead and fire up the uh, internet and find those games. Cause I think there'll be some really good matchups and uh, 
Michelle, I don't know if you follow Duke much this year, but they've been cruising along this season. They took two out of three from Notre Dame, two out of three from Louisville, two out of three from Virginia Tech, and they swept North Carolina, Boston College, and Georgia Tech over the weekend. Anna Gold hit her team-leading 18th home run, setting a new program single-season record. So kudos to her. They finish up the regular season this week uh, with Pitt. Yeah, uh, good stuff, JDH. And it is interesting because Duke is in the fourth spot in the ACC, which is really kind of weird because they're 15 and six in the ACC. They're 40 and eight overall. Um, Again, one of those teams I feel like is kind of sleeping, lurking back there um, that I think could have a deep postseason run. Another little bit of information before we roll down to the next spot is the ACC championship. Florida State has won seven of the last eight Duke the lone winner in 2021. So we'll see if anyone can dethrone the Knowles in that uh, single elimination ACC championship. Okay, moving to number six on the lineup card, we have midweek mid-major success. We can all say that uh, mid-majors are definitely going to be making some major noise in the NCAA tournament. I mean, based off of the schedules that they put together and the teams that they've played, it seems like they're prime and ready to make some upsets in the tournament. And so many have already made upsets so far this year and have been battle-tested. I mean, just this past week, uh, to name a few that happened recently, Liberty beat Alabama. Marshall played Alabama really tight that same day. Alabama State beat Georgia Tech. And then Wichita State beat Oklahoma Oklahoma State. That's a lot of states in there. Uh, but for the second time this year, which speaking of today is Tuesday when we're recording this and they were supposed to take on Oklahoma Jen tonight, but that game got canceled. Um, I know we're all so bummed about that, but Jen, you had a chance to see Wichita State um, in person last week in Stillwater. What did you think about the Shockers? Well, first and foremost, I am so sad that that game is canceled. I wanted to watch so bad because what I did see from Wichita State last week is a team that doesn't care who their opponent is. They do not make the game too big. And Sydney McKinney, you guys, I was so excited to get to watch her hit in person. She looks like she is playing video games when she is up to bat. The way that she reads a defense, drops bunts down, is able to direct her bat head to purposely place balls. She truly is an elite, incredible hitter who's so fun to watch. She's at 364 career hits. That's number seven on the list. Sitting at number six is the great Kelly Kretschmann at 368. So she's only four away from that. And you got to think any game that's canceled this late in the season is going to impact the potential of her moving up on that list. Um, Aguilar was the American pitcher of the week again for the third time. But I want to spend some time talking about their head coach, Christy Breadbenner, because if you talk to anyone who has played for her, they all talk about the culture that she creates. They buy in to what she teaches. They buy into her program. They buy into her culture. That's what I really saw from Wichita State. They were so excited to compete at Oklahoma State. They were excited for that game. They didn't look nervous. I was with them on the field before the game, talking to them. They were so thrilled to play. And then after, it was like, they're so giddy. The game seems like it's so much fun to Wichita State. And I didn't necessarily feel that from Oklahoma State. Another mid-major that I'd love to talk about is UCA, Central Arkansas. You guys, they took the series from Liberty. They've only lost two games in the A-Sun. And so I went and looked at their stats because I think anytime you see a a mid-major team that's dominating, you either got to have a dominant pitcher or some sort of dominant hitter. 
their highest batting average on the team is 315. That's it with 27 RBIs. That's their team leader in offense. And then their two pitchers are sitting at like a 137-160. So to me, UCA is a team that is getting it done. And that's pretty impressive. Uh, Danielle, I know you want to give a little love to Liberty, who beat UCA this past weekend. Yeah. Um, and also Liberty taking down Bama. And I think anytime you get the chance to face a Montana Fouts, it's kind of one of those situations where you rise to the occasion. And when I think of Liberty and Coach Dot Richardson, that is a team that is fearless and they do not care who they're playing. Yeah, they've dropped some games maybe that they shouldn't have, but just looking at the fact that they're playing Auburn midweek and they find a way to get to Alex Salters and then Montana Fouts. I mean, they had two hits, three earned runs um, or three runs, excuse me, two of those are earned. And I think that's big because that just goes to show it doesn't matter who you're facing. You're able to kind of step up and level up. And they're definitely a team, when you think about like postseason, they always kind of grind through and you're like, dang, like that's a team that I would not really want to match up with. Um, Led by Carolyn Hudson. I mean, she has 12 homers on the year for them and KK Madri leads them um, in average as well as 20 stolen bases on the season. I wasn't surprised that they dropped two to Central Arkansas because, I mean, you kind of look at what Central Arkansas has done this year with not only how they're performing in conference play, but sniping two from Arkansas and taking the world by storm it being the first time it's ever happened. That was iconic. So when I look at Liberty, they got a little bit of a weekend ahead in the sense where they're going to be playing Clemson. Um, they're going to get to challenge themselves again, playing against maybe uh, Valerie Cagle and what she's been able to do. And then they'll uh, play three games against Austin P. So and then just a little thing about McKinney, it's not anything crazy, but she's only had five games this whole season without getting a hit. So she's always finding a way to get on base. She's one of the best. And she's the type of player that it's like, I, as a pitcher, wish that I could have got the chance to face. Yeah, so Sydney McKinney um, and Kayla Beaver from Central Arkansas to the top 25 finalists for USA Softball National Player of the Year. Um, okay, so moving to number seven, honoring Hutch. Uh, we have officially or we now officially have a Carol Hutchins stadium in Ann Arbor as the Michigan softball team stadium now carries her name. Uh, and let it, of course, she's their legendary former head coach and the winningest softball coach in the history of the NCAA and history of Michigan athletics, actually um, in the game after the ceremony. So they had a ceremony for her and, and honored her. And after that game, Michigan went on to run rule Northwestern 15 to nothing. And Lauren Durkowski pitched a one hitter for the win. Um, before it was Carol Hutchins Stadium, Madison, it was called Alumni Field, and Carol Hutchins told Mich- the Michigan Daily uh, that she personally named it Alumni Field, and she just always wanted it named after all of the people that played on that field. Uh, Michigan catcher Kiki Thole told the Michigan Daily also that, quote-unquote, she built this kingdom. Uh, did you have a chance, Madison, to, to see any of that ceremony, or, or what are your thoughts on, on them kind of giving that, that honor to Carol Hutchins? Yeah, I thought it was really awesome hearing from Hutch, too, just about how every single day that she came to the field and all of her years running that program, she took a moment to step inside of the dugout and just have this moment of gratitude, just because she was so thankful for the players that she's been able to coach, the incredible stadium, the fans, and the atmosphere. I thought it was really cool that... You know, we always talk about her and the amount of games that she was able to win, but her just soaking up every single moment of being able to be out on that field and now to have the stadium named after you. I thought it was really cool to just hear how uh, emotional she was in the best way uh, about that. And what a better way to honor her than to get that 15-0 
uh, run rule win over Northwestern. The three home runs, two of them keep coming from Kiki Thole too. And I think Michigan's kind of a team where maybe they got off to a bit of a rocky start this year, but seemed to be finding their footing a little bit. Lauren Durkowski ended up pitching in all three games this past weekend. And I think when she's on, when she's got that curveball moving away from the right-handed batters, she can be really difficult to hit. And I think we've seen examples of that throughout the season. Um, But I wanted to switch gears here and talk a little bit about Northwestern. And I know at the beginning of the year, they're another team that struggled a bit, ended up giving up 47 runs in just the first two weekends um, of of play this season, but seemed to be getting on track too. And they're a veteran-led team. You know that they're not going to panic in those high-pressure moments, and we've seen them come back in some games throughout this year. Uh, But they're a team that's really starting to click, and they're going to have a big series this coming weekend uh, going up against Nebraska. So that'll be a good one this weekend. Yeah, I mean, Nebraska currently sits at number two in the Big Ten standings. So uh, you kind of think if Northwestern at least wins the series that they're likely to take the Big Ten regular champion or regular season championship. Um, also to note in the Big Ten is that Michigan State and Illinois faced off against each other. And Michigan State's head coach is Sharonda McDonald, my former teammate, now Sharonda McDonald Kelly. And Illinois' head coach is Tyra Perry. And this is the first time ever that two Black women softball coaches uh, met up in a power five matchup in history. Uh, So Tyra and Sharonda are two of three black women head coaches across all the power five softball programs. So uh, more history that was made in the Big Ten and um, a really cool moment. I think we aired that, Madison. I think I saw that Aaron uh, Miller was on that call. I can't remember if that was game one or game two. Did you see anything about that? Yeah, I just thought like I thought it was a cool moment again, just seeing little clips of them meeting at home plate and just what a historic moment that was and how much it means for for not just their programs, but I think softball as a whole. And we always talk about growing the sport. And I think that's an exa- a prime example of being able to show uh, that historic moment between both of those coaches. I know you have a very special relationship with uh, Sharonda McDonald. I got to play with Sharonda for for a year and I thoroughly enjoyed it. What an incredible human being. And just to see the success that she's had in the coaching ranks it is really awesome awesome to see. Yeah, really cool. In case you're wondering the score, Illinois defeated Michigan State four to three in that game, Michelle. Yeah, uh, yeah, really outstanding stuff. I love the fact um, both those coaches outstanding and, um, you know, on that same vein, um, the number of successful uh, black pitchers this year in the circle, love that, right? And that starts at the youth level, um, allowing those, those young girls the opportunity to to pitch in the circle. So love, love the great things that are happening in our sport. All right. Well, you know what that means. We're going into the eight hole time to shag some stats. All right. I'm going to go first. My stat is, um, all right. I'm, I'm going to spend a little time on this. I apologize. It, it's actually three stats as I put four fingers up. Um, <laughs> Oklahoma, Number one fielding defense in the country, 12 errors. They're at a 988 fielding percentage. Number one batting average in the country at 372. Number one ERA in the country at a 0.83. I wonder, has anyone else ever done that? Has any other team ever dominated in all three categories, been number one in the in the country? I don't know. We'll have to do a little research on that. All right. Who's got a stat next? Don't everybody jump at once. All right. <laughs> up for you. You're up. You're up, Jen. I think Let's... I tricked everyone because I <laughs> unmuted myself for a second. So they thought I was going and then I muted myself. They all looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> all right. Um, my stat is about Texas. And I I got this one from Danielle. So thank you, Danielle. And I find it very interesting. So Texas actually has 323 runs scored 
That is more than they have in hits. They're an offense that has more runs than actual hits. It's another one, Michelle. I'm not quite sure any other team in the country has that. Maddie, what do you have? Well, I'm actually going to go a little bit to slugging percentage here. And there are only three players in the country that have a slugging percentage over, are we saying over a thousand over one? Michelle, what's the correct terminology on the slugging percentage? I feel like I need to get up to speed on that. I think it's a thousand. So a sure. thousand. Yeah, over the, the slug over a thousand. All right. So we're going to go with a thousand. So three players across the country with slugging over a thousand, two of them coming from the SEC, Skylar Wallace in the lead with uh, just over a thousand at a thousand ninety eight. Um, and then uh, Kelsey Hall, a senior from Boise State at a thousand sixty and Aaron Koffel coming in in that third spot at a thousand twenty one. So three players with a slugging percentage over a thousand. And Maddie, I'm going to piggyback right on top of your shag and stat because Erin Koffel right now at Kentucky, she has 16 home runs on the year, but she's really the big threat for power in that lineup. And because of that, she leads the country in walks per game. She's got 52 walks in 43 games. I do want to add a little bit of a nugget to a team we never talk about. Abby Chips of Indiana State only has one strikeout in 40 games. So I've got to give a little nod to a hitter who is really tough to strike out. I'm going to go four hottest teams in college softball who are riding a streak of 13 or more. So Oklahoma is 132, Boston University out of the Patriot League is 22 win streak, UCLA 16 games, and Duke 13. Nice. And Danielle, earlier you mentioned Ryland Hedgecock from uh, Arkansas. In 2020 to 2022, she only hit two home runs. Didn't get a, a lot of playing time because she was playing behind Lenny Malkin amongst some some others in those years. Uh, but this year she has hit 19, which is tied for the most in the country with actually four other or three other people. So Taryn Kern from Indiana, Kiki Malloy from Tennessee, and Taylor Roby from Louisville. All right. So we've had some great stats there. Good job digging those out of the, the pile. I always love uh, seeing what we can come up with on a weekly basis. All right. We're uh, down to the last spot, to the nine hole. Uh, we're we're going to um, talk a little bit about some of the questions that y'all sent us uh, at the uh, Twitterverse um, at seven innings podcast. Um, and so Taylor at underscore yours truly 202 asked, <laughs> how are teams in the top 10 um, RPI ranked? Um, and some have a better record than ranked teams that are below the top 15. So basically she's asking is that, how do you expect the committee to um, factor in RPI with the conference record uh, as well as their rankings when it comes to selection Sunday? And so for example, Clemson has an RPI of 15, but they're ranked six. LSU has an RPI of six, but they're ranked 14. So ladies, what are your thoughts? Does uh, a team like LSU, are, are they going to get a top eight? Are they, could they potentially win a regional and then host a super regional? This is when all the fun starts to happen. Cause we all start to project and think about it. But I do think that the one thing to point out is like the rankings that you see on the bug during our games, or that you see that your favorite team tweets out that they're ranked. That's more opinion based. People vote on that. It's strictly an opinion. Like, I think that this is the, the number five team and six and seven 
RPI literally has no opinion based in it. It's just an equation that factors in win percentage, strength of schedule, and also opponents strength of schedule. So those three factors factor in to RPI, which is ratings percentage index. So um, it's, it's opinion based Michelle versus more factual based with RPI. Um, and that's why it can be different. And I think that's a big reason why coaches schedule difficult out of conference play in those conferences where they struggle to have, you know, an opponents in league play that will boost their RPI. They really push themselves really difficult in the pre-conference schedule to be able to boost their RPI. Teams within the SEC or the ACC are at an advantage because as they go down the stretch, their RPI actually increases because of their the opponents that they will play in conference. I don't know what it's going to look like down the stretch, but the committee definitely puts more, more credence into the RPI. The rankings really have nothing to do with it. I think too, I think we've seen an emphasis for a lot of these coaches across the country, even in the power fives to schedule high caliber competition in their out of conference games to, to build up the RPI, but also to kind of prepare their team for what they might see into the postseason. So I think we've seen historically over the past couple of years that the committee seems to value the higher strength of schedule and not necessarily just looking strictly at the wins and, and losses. But I do think to your point, Amanda, it is the combination once we get towards the stretch of using that RPI which is purely numbers, but also the eye test and everything else that goes along with it of how a team's playing. Last question. And I love this. This is um, from uppity old woman at uppity W. Um, so she's asking what statistics predict, <laughs> reliably predict success for a pitcher, hitter, or team. Um, and in a related vein, uh, can a team make the women's college world series if they were relying primarily on pitching with a modest offense or vice versa, a really good hitting team with a maybe a, a pitching staff that gives up a lot of runs. So real quick, I'm going to say for a pitcher, I love whip because it's walks and hits given up per innings pitch. It gives you a good idea of how many one, two, three innings they have. If you're below a one, you're at least having a one, two, three inning in a game. And um, so that's what you're really shooting for because it's hard to score, obviously, when no one is getting on base. Um, and then I think, yeah, I think if a team gets hot at the right time and you have a really good pitching staff I, and you get the timely hits, it's all situational hitting as well as situational pitching. I think that's the magic of the Women's College World Series is you truly have no idea who's going to be there. It can be a team that gets hot. It could be a team no one's talking about. And I think that's what makes this sport so great. So I think absolutely. Well, and I also think if you are a pitcher that is dominant, and you have a hitting crew that isn't really putting up a lot of runs, it comes down to making sure your defense is showing up too. I don't know that a, that a, a great pitcher is able to do a ton unless they've got a defense able to back them up. You do just need that one situationally executed hit that definitely pushes you through, but you got to have solid defense and pitching if you're not scoring a lot of runs. Yeah, when I was calling the Auburn series, that was something that Mickey Dean kept talking about. Like our goal this offseason was defense. Like if we can't play D, we cannot make it far. And looking at where they were last year compared to this year has been the difference maker. He said it's hard to teach situational hitting. It's hard to get these women to be able to step up in those moments. You can't teach that. Sometimes it just happens when the team is synced at the right time, right? And you'll see as May comes, like what teams are all together Obviously, you have to have a pitcher that can go out and log some good innings and, and more so the staff, because I don't think 
I think in Alabama, which is one Montana Fouts is in tough throughout the rest of the season, but it comes down to clean defense for me, hoping you can have a pitching staff that works collectively great as a group and then having a clutch hitter that can step up when they feel that intense pressure. Yeah, and kind of going back to the stats too, one stat that I didn't look at a ton when I was playing, uh, but I've looked continued to look at more now that I'm in broadcasting, and I actually had a really good conversation with the hitting coach at Tennessee, Coach Chris Malvo, and the correlation between slugging percentage and run production. And so that's something that I'm going to continue to keep my eye on too. He was talking about how, you know, the higher the slugging percentage, the more runs that you're going to be able to get across the board. I think so far uh, this year, Tennessee's offense is pro- proving that if you have that high slug, uh, you're going to score a lot of runs. Can I say something real quick? Did you ask the Tennessee pitching coach like kind of what the offseason difference was? Because Tennessee like looks like a completely different team offensively this year. They say yeah, you know, uh, well, so I think it's a it's you know the year two of having Coach Chris Malbo under the under the staff too because he has a very distinct way in which he teaches hitting really from the ground up. And so I think last year you were seeing the the players they were bought in, but it just takes a little bit of time to get that timing down in the game. And I think right now we're seeing the product of several years worth of hard work going into the swings that they've been able to put on the ball. Mm. Well, and the swings they're putting up right now, they've got a lot of split grip swingers and it's something that he doesn't teach actually. And that split grip is actually a drill that they do that a lot of hitters have felt very comfortable with and they've pushed it into their game swing. Coach Malvo talked about how he was going to address that after the season to make sure that that was something that they found longevity with and not just kind of a fluke of a season. Yeah, some of them have kind of gone back to their their regular um, stances, but it is interesting seeing how uh, even the strides, this the swings, everything's kind of morphed even uh, over the course of this season. It's really fun to see the changes, uh, the slight changes that they're making in their swings. Michelle, I know you like to look look at team stats of walks and strikeouts, looking to see if a team has more walks than they're striking out. And that's big. And then one more uh, that I've been looking at it for a hitter specifically is OPS. So on base plus slugging percentage, you talk about reliably to reliable, reliably predict success for a hitter. And that means really, you know, if they're not hitting a double or a home run or getting extra base hit in terms of slugging percentage and they're still finding a way to get on base. So they're hitting the ball hard at somebody and they're committing an error or they're drawing a walk or, you know, just finding a way to get on base and still uh, contribute to their team. So good conversation guys. That was fun, Michelle. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm sure Miss Uppity will uh, have really enjoyed our conversation and uh, very good question. So if you ask a good question, you get a good answer. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Another great show. Good conversations uh, through the entire lineup. Uh, remember to follow us on Twitter and all social media at Seven Innings Podcast. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you on the road to the Women's College World Series as next week the mayhem begins.